13, verses 1 through 11, reading here from the New American Standard Bible. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, He said, not all of you are clean. I think we all can relate to Linus in the uh, well-known Peanuts cartoon strip when he cries out in frustration, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. You know, it's easy to love mankind way out there in the general, people we don't know. It becomes a little more difficult with some of the uh, people that the Lord seems to put in our lives, people who are irritating, people who are difficult to get along with. And in our text, we see Jesus loving men who did not deserve his love. We know that from a number of angles. In, In Luke's account of the upper room here, when the Last Supper was... Um, taking place. Uh, We know that just after Jesus announced that one of them would betray him, the disciples got into a dispute of all things over which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine? Um, Now, for reasons we cannot know, John omits telling about the Last Supper. I mean, he's describing it here as the Passover and they're eating, but he doesn't give any institution of the supper, this is my body, this is my blood, and all of that as the other three Gospels do. Uh, Some speculate that maybe by the time John wrote toward the end of the first century, uh, that rite of the Lord's Supper had become elevated to even an unhealthy level where maybe it had taken on a magical turn as it even does today in some circles. But Whatever reason, he omits it, but sometime during the supper, according to verse 2, Jesus got up and he performed this task of washing the disciples' feet. It was normally 
the job of a lowly servant, a slave. And since the foot washing came before Jesus mentions the betrayer, at least in John's account, he doesn't mention the betrayer until specifically until verse 26, it would seem to me that the dispute among the disciples about which one of them was the greatest probably, incredibly, came after this lesson of humility that Jesus here um, gives them. Not only were the disciples bickering, which showed them unworthy of his love, but also, as we know, verse 2 again reminds us, Judas is about to betray Jesus. Peter is about to deny Jesus. Thomas is about to doubt Jesus. All of the apostles are about to desert him at his time of greatest need. And all of those sins show that none of the apostles were worthy of Jesus' love. They didn't get his love because of something in them. Also, I think just the fact that they needed their dirty feet washed, as we will see in a moment, pictures their need for for cleansing from sin. And the point I'm making is, we're all just like they were. We all fall short through many, many sins against the Lord, often when we should know better. Uh, We all have dirty feet that Jesus needs to wash. And so Jesus came, as you know, to die in the place of dirty sinners so that they can be cleansed of their sin. And so this story is all about that. There's another theme in the story, and that is Christ's humility in washing the disciples' feet. And as we'll see, it's a practical example of how we are to serve one another in love. And then uh, there is this, this theme of Jesus' love. So you have three themes here, and it was kind of difficult as I studied this text to think, how do these all dovetail? But you have the theme of Jesus' love for those who do not deserve it. You have the theme of Jesus' example of humility and service here, and you have the theme of the need of cleansing. And so I I tied them together by just putting it this way, that Christ's love and, and his humble service and his cleansing your sins should be realities in your life, those three things, Christ's love, his humble service, and his cleansing your sins, those three things should really be central in your experience. So let's look first at Christ's love. It's a love that you and I did not deserve, but Christ's love should be a reality in your life. And John, you'll notice in verse 1, emphasizes Jesus' love for his own through repetition. Now before the feast of the Passover... Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that last phrase, I think, is deliberately ambiguous. It can mean Jesus loved them right up to the end of his life. And it can mean Jesus loved them to the uttermost or to the greatest extent possible, and certainly both are true. John's mention of the Passover in verse 1 
draws us as believers to remember that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Just as the Jews during the Passover would take the blood of the slain lamb and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel over the door, and by putting that blood there, it protected their home from the angel of death when the exodus took place. It is symbolic of the fact that when the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our hearts by faith, it protects us from the eternal death that those outside of Christ will face someday. Um, The fact that Jesus' hour had come, he mentions that, that he knew his hour had come, reminds us again that God ordained the cross. It wasn't the surprise to Jesus of how could this happen. Uh, It was in the predestined events of God, according to Acts 4, 27 and 28. And yet at the same time, those who did it were 100% responsible for their sin. If you can tie those two together and write a book about it, you'll be the greatest theologian who has ever lived. Uh, They seem at tension, but they are both true. That God sovereignly ordained the cross, and yet God was not responsible for the sin that led to the cross. But the point is, it didn't take Jesus by surprise. He deliberately laid aside his glory, just as here he lays aside his garments, just as he, and I'm just referring here to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says he, he laid aside his glory. He took on the form of a servant. That's what he does here. Takes on the form of a slave. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then, after he arose from the dead, he took back his glory. He, arose, he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father in glory. But the point here that you should not miss is, unless Jesus is your Passover lamb, unless you have come in faith to Christ and applied his shed blood to all your sins, then you're under the curse of death. And God warns in the book of Revelation that the second death is irreversible. It will be an eternal death of separation from God. Notice also in that first verse that John emphasizes that Jesus' disciples were in the world. Jesus is about to depart from the world, but the disciples are still in it. And in John chapter 17, Jesus will pray, not that the Father take them out of the world, that's their sphere of ministry, but that he will leave them in the world and keep them from the evil one. And they are to be distinct from the world. But, you know, walking in the world means you get your feet dirty, and that will lead to the need for cleansing that we'll look at in just a moment. Notice in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1 also, that John emphasizes that Jesus loved his own. Now, John 3.16, as we saw, makes the point that God so loved the whole world Uh, But here, the focus is not on the world. It's on Jesus loving his own, his own whom the Father gave him. Uh, God loves the world in the sense that God made provision 
for the sins of any who will come and believe on Jesus. And so, in almost the final words of the Bible, the invitation is, Come, come, and and take freely of the water of life without cost. The Bible shows the love of God in giving that invitation to every sinner, no matter how badly he, he or she has sinned. Come to Jesus, and there is mercy, and there is forgiveness. But here in our text we see that Jesus has a special love for his own. And he has this love for his own that he doesn't have for the whole world. Uh, It is, uh, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 5.25, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, The context of that verse helps us to understand the special love of Christ because that verse occurs in the, in the context of Paul exhorting husbands to love their wives. Now, the Bible exhorts me to love all my Christian sisters, and I try to do that. But i got to tell you something. There's one sister I love more than any of you. And that's my bride, my wife. She's special. She is my special love. Or to use another analogy, the Bible tells us that we're to love all the children of God. And I seek to do that. But there's three children of God that I love specially, and they're my, my children. And every parent knows that. Sure, you love all kids, they're wonderful, but yours are special to you, and God designed it that way. And the point here that John wants us to know is if you have put your trust in Christ, Christ has a special love for you. And he wants you to feel that love and to experience that love on a daily basis as his bride, as his child. Now, John kind of sharply jars us with verse 2, which contrasts the love of Christ for his own in verse 1 with this satanic treachery of Judas in verse 2. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, I believe Jesus loved Judas, even though he wasn't one of his own. But Jesus loved him. I think here he washes Judas' feet. As far as I know, Judas partook of the Lord's Supper before he left the room and left. But Judas was about to betray Jesus. And we saw way back in chapter 6 and verse 70, Jesus knew all along that Judas would betray him, and he chose him as one of the twelve anyway in fulfillment of Scripture. And while it says in verse 2 that Satan was the immediate force behind Judas going out to betray Jesus, we need to understand Judas was fully responsible for his sin as all people are when they sin. We can't blame the devil. The devil made me do it, you know, as a famous line used to go. Uh, No, I did it. And so we have to own up to that. But here you have Jesus' great love in verse 1 and Judas stiff-arming that love and going out in horrible contrast to it to betray the Son of God. And so... John, I think, here wants us to ask ourselves the question. He wants to ask you the question. In spite of being painfully aware that you don't deserve it, 
And if you think you do deserve it, you don't understand it. But you're aware you don't deserve it. But the question is this. Do you experience the love of Jesus for you on a consistent basis? Does it humble you before the cross as you think on the fact that he died for me? Does it cause you to hate your sin? And to say, how could I, I sin against the Lord who gave himself for me? Does it motivate you to serve others in love, even when they're difficult people to serve? Out of love for Jesus. And if you're here and you can say, well, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever experienced his love. Then the question for you is, why not today? Why don't you respond to Jesus today who is reaching out to you through the words of this text to say, come, come. There's mercy, there's forgiveness at the cross if you'll believe. Now, John doesn't just tell us, though, about Jesus' love. He gives us this dramatic, shocking example of it. And that leads to the second lesson of our text. And that is that Christ's example of humble service should be a reality in your life. You know, often actions speak louder than words. And uh, here, Jesus' actions show us both, number one, how he loved us when we were unworthy. And number two, he gives us an example, in case you're wondering, how can I love that unlovely person in my life who keeps irritating me? Well, here you have exhibit A. An example of how to do it. And here's how John paints the picture in verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. That first phrase lifts Christ up and shows his position of authority over the entire universe. The Father had given all things into Jesus' hands. Jesus was over and is over all the angelic hosts of heaven. And those hands that can beckon an angel to go and he goes or do and he does washed 12 pairs of dirty feet of these disciples. Now, to understand the incident, you have to understand that washing someone's feet was the job of the lowest of the lowest of slaves. Friends didn't wash friends' feet. That wasn't done in the culture. That was beneath even a friend to do that. Uh, there are no examples in ancient literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior in the social status. And I think the disciples here would have just been shocked to have the one, as we see down in verse 13, they called him teacher and Lord, and to have him do this menial task for them would have just been stunning. And apparently they were so stunned that they just sat there in shocked silence as he began. I don't know what order Peter was until he got to Peter. And in typical fashion, Peter blurts out, you know, his, his line in verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. Um, but Jesus 
is going on to explain down in verses uh, 14 and 15 that he's giving them what he did as an example so that they would learn to humbly serve one another even as he served them. And I want to look at four aspects of Jesus' humility that shine through here that help us when we seek to imitate his service toward others. First of all, humility recognizes that there is no task beneath us to do for Christ's sake. Nothing is too low. And if you'll excuse the personal illustration here, I learned this lesson very early in my ministry. We had a couple who started coming to our church who I don't know if they were truly saved yet or not, or they were pretty raw in their faith if they were Christians at all. And the husband had a violent temper. And one day I got a call from the wife who was hysterical and in, you know, in tears. They had just had a bad quarrel and she asked if I could come over. They had a young baby and, and she didn't have a means of transportation and they just lived around the corner from us. So I, I went over there. First thing I saw when I walked in was the beans all over the wall and the floor that the husband had angrily thrown off the stove before he left. But then my nose directed my eyes down to the floor in front of me because there was this horrible stench of vomit. And she had vomited all over the floor and didn't feel well enough to get up and clean it up. And so I walked into a living room with vomit. And before I could talk to her about her soul and about her marriage, I had to get out some things and clean up vomit off the floor. Welcome to the ministry. But, you know, that's how the Lord does. Now, I'm not suggesting a pastor's main role is that of doing jobs like that all the time, but sometimes it is. Certainly, the scripture is clear. We all have gifts that differ according to the abilities given us, those who are to speak or to speak, those who serve or to serve, First Peter 4 says. But my point is this. Don't think that there's ever a task that you shouldn't do if God calls you to do it in serving him. And sometimes that includes cleaning vomit off the floor before you can minister in other ways to a, a person. The second thing here about humility that comes through is that it requires thinking of others more highly than you think of yourself. The disciples hadn't washed one another's feet because they were engaged in a dispute about which one of them was the greatest. And uh, in Luke, he points out that after Jesus pointed out to them that their way of behavior, seeking dominance over one another, was the way of the world, Then Jesus added this in Luke 22, verses 26 and 27. He said, but it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become the youngest, or like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Two women in the church in Philippi were having a dispute, and I'm glad the Bible's so honest about all this. Sometimes we talk about getting back to the early church as if it had no problems. 
the early church had the same problems we have because when you have people, you have problems, okay? The only church without problems doesn't have any people. And, and so you, you had two women, and they were squabbling. And these were women who were serving the Lord. And Paul writes to that church in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, these wonderful words, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And as you know, verse 5 then, he goes on to say, to look to Christ, who, though he existed eternally as God, was willing to lay aside his glory to take on the form of a servant and go to the cross for our sakes. But, you know, so many quarrels in the church and in the home would just dissipate and evaporate if we would, with humility of mind, regard the other person as more important than ourselves. I venture to say all of our quarrels pretty much stem from self being at the center. Related to that is the third aspect of humility. Uh, first of all, no task is beneath us. Secondly, thinking of others more highly than yourself. But thirdly, humility requires getting your focus then off your rights and your needs and under the needs of others. Um, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one into whom the Father had given all things into his hands, didn't he have some rights? Sure. He had the right to command the angels. But here, even though he had the right to have the disciples wash his feet, he washed their feet. Now, not in the picture of sin, but just in the raw fact of dirty feet. I'm sure Jesus' feet were just as dirty as theirs. It would be a mistake to think that somehow Jesus walked in this world and, you know, he floated three inches off the ground. His feet never got dirty. He was a man and they wore sandals and it was dusty. His feet were dirty. The disciples should have looked and said, you know, I'll bet the Lord could be refreshed if I washed his feet. But their focus was on themselves. Their focus was on, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And here they are bickering about all of that. But Jesus wasn't focused on his needs or his rights. He's focused on theirs. And they not only needed their dirty feet washed, they needed a lesson in humility. And so he washes their feet. But again, how many quarrels at church and in our homes would just vanish if instead of thinking about, well, I have a right, we thought about, well, they have a need. They have a need that I can meet. You know, sometimes husbands get the idea, well, you know, I've worked hard all day, man. I've been slaving away at work, and my wife doesn't know all those hassles I have to put up with, and I'm doing it all for her and to provide for the kids. And when I get home, I have a right to some peace and quiet. Well, maybe that's the wrong focus. When you get home... Your duty is to serve your family. Or maybe the wife, to turn it around. She's thinking, man, I've been home changing diapers and putting up with screaming kids while I try to shop for groceries. And, and I, I, I've been fixing dinner and cleaning up messes and doing all of this. And he walks in and thinks he's the king of the roost. And I have a right to have some time to myself. 
Again, well, maybe there's some truth there, but really it's the wrong focus. Humble service lays aside rights and says, what are others' needs? And may I add this little word, cheerfully meets those needs. Cheerfully, that's the key. Not, you know, okay, I'll do it for you. No, no, cheerfully as unto the Lord who washes our feet. And then finally, and this kind of turns it around, but points out a danger in this. Humility requires receiving and not just giving. Humility requires receiving. Because, you know, it's easy to serve others out of pride. <laughs> I'm one up on them, man. Look what I did for them. You know, and, and it's easy to look down on people that you serve. I'm better than they are, and so I get to serve. And I think Peter's unwillingness to let Jesus wash his feet didn't come from humility. It came from pride. First of all, that implies that his feet were just as dirty as the other disciples. And uh, he didn't want to admit that, but they were. And, you know, it would have served Peter's pride if he could have got the drop on the other disciples and washed Jesus' feet first. (laughs) I'm better than they are. Look how I serve the Lord. And my point is, it is so easy for pride to slip in when when you're involved in service. And Jesus here explains to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, you don't have any part with me. The lesson is this. There are a lot of people who are offended by the message of the gospel because they want to think they're good enough to get into heaven by their own good works. Uh, They want to be proud of all they do for others, you know. I mean, my feet are relatively clean, thank you, but boy, look at all the people whose feet I have washed. And if you think you can get into heaven by washing dirty feet or by serving others, you don't understand the gospel. The gospel says that we all have dirty feet. And the only way we can get into heaven is by letting Jesus wash them. Coming to him as a guilty sinner and recognizing you can't get into heaven by what you do and by your good works. You come and say, Lord, please wash me. Wash me. And that leads to the third theme. And that is Christ cleansing your sins should be a reality in your life. We've seen his undeserved love. That should be a reality in your life. His example of humble service, that should be a reality in your daily life, your experience. But foundational to everything, as I've just said, is you cannot experience Christ's love And you cannot serve others out of service to Christ if first you've not come and let him cleanse your sins. And so Jesus' action here in washing their feet is kind of a foreshadowing of what he did on the cross. One writer named A.M. Hunter made this observation. The deeper meaning is that there is no place in his fellowship for those who have not been cleansed by his atoning death. And then he goes on to point out that this episode pictures the truth of 1 John 1, 7, and that is 
the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then Hunter adds this. Many people today would like to be Christians, but they see no need of the cross. They're ready to admire Jesus's life and to praise the sublimity of his moral teaching, but they cannot bring themselves to believe that Christ died for their sins and that without that death, they would be lost in sin. I see at least three reasons in our text that we all need Jesus Christ to cleanse our sins. First of all, cleansing is necessary because of who Jesus is. Remember, John begins his gospel back in chapter 1 with Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That the eternal God who shared the glory of his Father laid that aside and took on human flesh so that he could come to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross. We saw in chapter 1, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Uh, We saw in chapter 8 that he is light in him. He... Light means he is perfectly pure like the Father. 1 John 1, 5 says God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Jesus is the light. And so Jesus lived a sinless life, and he could rhetorically ask his critics, as we saw back in John 8, 46, which of you convicts me of sin? But just going with our text right here in John 13, 1 through 11, we see Jesus is the eternal, omniscient one. He knew that his hour had come. He would shortly be returning to the Father from whom he came to this earth. So he was forever with the Father in glory. He laid aside his glory, came, served as a servant, went to the cross. Now he's going back again to the Father. He knew that his hour had come. He knew that Judas would betray him, so he is omniscient. And he knows each of us thoroughly, which is a little disarming, isn't it? He knows every thought you have. He knows every word you speak. Not only is Jesus the eternal omniscient one, he's also the loving one, as we've seen, because in spite of our failures and sins, and thankfully he knew all those in advance, He still loves us, and that's a great comforting thought. Jesus is also the sovereign one, says the Father has given all things into his hand. So Jesus was in complete control of his own death. It didn't take him by surprise. And neither Satan nor Judas could thwart God's plan for the cross. Rather, they inadvertently fulfilled God's plan, which meant Satan's defeat. And then in our text, we see also that Jesus is the suffering servant who died for our sins. And his example of humble service here identifies him with the servant of Isaiah 53. The Passover, as I mentioned, identifies him with the Passover lamb that takes away all our sin. And when you come into the presence of the Holy One of God, of Jesus Remember Isaiah when he got the glimpse into God's presence? Even though he was a prophet, he said, woe is me. Same thing with Peter. When he got a glimpse of Jesus' glory, he cried out, Luke 5, 8, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. 
So cleansing is necessary because of who Jesus is. Cleansing is also necessary because of who we are. As I've mentioned, we're all guilty sinners in need of cleansing. Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, contrary to some expositors, I don't think our text here has anything to do with baptism. And it's not instituting, and I'll say more on this next week, but it's not instituting a third church ritual, baptism and the Lord's Supper and a foot washing ritual. But rather, I think what Jesus means here is that if I don't wash away your sins by my atoning death, then you have no part with me. His death, providing cleansing for our sin, is essential to a relationship with him. And the foot washing refers to the ongoing application of Jesus' once and for all cleansing in our daily lives. Um, There are two types of cleansing here. You notice in verse 10, he who is bathed, that's one type, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not all of you, referring to Judas, of course. So the bath is the once and for all washing of regeneration. When you come to Christ in faith, all your sins, past, present, future, are all washed away in Christ. But then you have a need for ongoing cleansing in your daily walk with Christ. And that's what the foot washing here pictures. You might compare it to a boy who's an orphan or needs to be adopted, and he's adopted into a family, and as a son, at that instant, he gains all the privileges of sonship. He is fully a son of his father. But then, in their ongoing relationship, undoubtedly, there will be times when the son wrongs his father in some way. He speaks disrespectfully to him, or he lies, or whatever. And at that point, he doesn't lose his sonship, But there's a need for restoration in the relationship. There's a need for the son to go to the father and say, Father, I I was wrong in what I did. Please forgive me. And in the same way, as children of God, we don't lose that standing and our complete righteousness before him through the blood of Christ when we sin. But the relationship is strained. And so when we do sin, we need to go to the Father and ask his forgiveness. And we are assured that we have that ongoing cleansing symbolized here by Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So cleansing is necessary in the first place because of who Jesus is. In the second place, because of who we are. And then in the third place, cleansing is necessary because of where we walk. And John emphasizes that the disciples were in this world. And when you walk in this sinful world, you get your feet dirty. Now, again, if you've trusted Christ, you're never so dirty that you need to have a whole bath again. Jesus gave you the bath when you trusted him. But on the other hand, you're never so clean that you don't need to have your feet washed over and over again because you get them defiled. So it's an ongoing process to maintain your relationship uh, with the Lord. Now, your feet get dirty, I think, in two ways. Sometimes they get dirty when you deliberately sin. And we've all done that as Christians. 
We just flat out knew what we should do, and we didn't do it. We rebelled against the Lord. And at those times, of course, we have to come back and confess our sins and appropriate the shed blood of Christ and his forgiveness at that moment. But there's a second way you get your feet dirty, and that's just getting defiled by all the crud in this dirty world. You know what I mean? Maybe it's being bombarded with sensual advertisements on TV. I hope you don't watch the shows that are deliberately sensual, but the advertisements, you can get defiled just at the supermarket checkout. I mean, all those magazines they have there, you know, if you stare at those things very long, you're going to walk out of the supermarket kind of feeling cruddy. And there are many, many ways in this world that you can feel that way. Maybe you've had to deal in the business world with greedy people who are trying to, you know, get your money. And all day it's a fight against that. And, you know, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, as First John 2 puts it. And you just come home and you feel kind of cruddy. I used to work as in a tipped as a tipped employee, as a room service waiter at a restaurant in Dallas when I was in seminary. And it was all money grubbing. You know, how big of a tip am I going to get? And the other guy's getting a better, better account than I got. And, you know, you, you just come home from that kind of feeling defiled and cruddy, like that's just stuff. And at those times, it's the time to open the word. In that text where Paul says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, he goes on to talk about the washing of water with the word. And the word is like clean water that just washes over your soul and you get alone with the Lord and the word and it's like Jesus is washing your feet. It's clean again. You just go, wow, block out that evil world and meet with the Savior. So I want you this morning, to, by way of ending here, to ask yourself three questions. The first question is, do I consistently experience Christ's undeserved love? Is that true? And if it's not, you've got to stop and figure out what's wrong. Why am I not experiencing that ongoing daily love of Christ for my soul? That, that's central. Second question, do I consistently follow Christ's example of humble service? And if you don't, boy, I'll bet you you got opportunities sitting right before you. There are sure a lot of them around this church that need doing, in your home, wherever. But just figure out some specific ways this week you can lay aside your rights and serve others in love. And then the third and final question, do I consistently come to Christ for cleansing from my sins and also just for cleansing from the crud of this dirty world? And if not, you got the basin of water and he's wanting to wash your feet, you just got to get near the water, which is the word, and let Jesus wash over your soul again and again, with the purity that we have in his written word. Father, I pray that you would, first of all, if there's anyone here who doesn't know your love through the cross, 
that you would open their heart and their eyes to see that the Savior is beckoning them to come and to receive eternal life as a free gift, forgiveness of all their sins, so that when they die, they will stand righteous before you through Christ, that they can now enter into a relationship with you even though they don't deserve it because of the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, if any of your children are not experiencing your love, that whatever the blockage is, you would clear it and help them to feel the great love of Christ that is such a motivation in the Christian life. And dear Lord, I pray that if any of your children are living selfishly, you would convict us and help us, Lord, to put our eyes on those around and to join Jesus in just washing dirty feet, doing the jobs that need doing to minister Christ to those around us. And I pray, Lord, that we all would experience your cleansing from our sins on a daily basis so that nothing would cloud our relationship with you. And we thank you for the mercy, the overflowing, steady, repeated, abundant mercy that is found at the cross. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.